You're listening to the AEBC Podcast. My name is Will Gunter, your host for this special, stupendous, knock-your-socks-off, amazing Christmas special. So this episode is a monster of an episode. It is one unlike we have ever done or that the human race has ever seen. This is not a devotion or a sermon or a hymn singing service. This is the Antioch East Baptist Church podcast Christmas special. Is there any other way that I can say that? I don't think so. So today, uh, things are going to be a little different. This is going to be quite a long episode, and it's going to be jam-packed with a lot of good information for you. Another difference in this episode and other devotions or sermons that you may have heard on this podcast is that I am not going to go back and edit this audio. So so usually if, if I say something silly in a devotion or if Brother Ron mis- misquotes something in a sermon, I'll go back and edit that and take that segment out. But in this Christmas special, I have pressed the record button and I'm going to stop it whenever I'm done. And I am not going back to the audio. So so an extra measure of grace and mercy on your part would be amazing. This is just an informal uh, time to focus on Christmas and some fun facts about various things and all the pronouns and such. Let me give you an o- overview of what we're going to be doing in this episode First thing I'm going to do is talk about the incarnation of Christ. We're going to look at the Council of Nicaea. We're going to look at Athanasius. And then I'm going to read from a few confessions throughout history, really just three, the Nicene Creed and a couple Baptist confessions, on what they say about the incarnation of Christ. Okay? So that's the first segment. Second segment, we're going to talk about the poetry of Christmas. We're going to talk about Christmas hymns. I'm going to give some fun facts, and then we're going to read the uh, a poem written in the 19th century. I'll talk more about that later. Section three in this podcast, um, I'm going to talk about, what am I going to talk about? What does my outline say? Oh, yes. I'm going to talk about four ways to celebrate Christmas. It's going to be a shorter section, but I think that it will hopefully be helpful to you as you um, have already spent most of the Christmas season, so maybe I should have said that in November, but that's okay. Better late than never. And then at the very end of this episode, uh, I'm going to be including Brother Ron's Christmas sermon from this past Sunday at Antioch East. Uh, I think that you will benefit from that. I did edit that a little bit, but not as much as usual. So this episode is just the, an opportunity for you to notice that, that we're human too. I know that you thought that, that Brother Ron and I were perfect and just spotless, um, but this is even just me continuing to talk right now is an example of how that is not true. <laughs> but as we begin this episode, I want to read a devotion from Charles Spurgeon. This is from his morning and evening devotion book. This is December 25th, morning of December 25th devotion. Now, if you go through this devotion with your family and you're listening to this on Christmas Eve, you might not want to listen to this part of the podcast. You you might want to skip over uh, a minute or so 
uh, if you're going to be reading this tomorrow. But if you're not, uh, this, this is Spurgeon's devotion. It comes from Isaiah 7, verse 14. This is what the text says. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is Spurgeon's commentary on that verse. Let us today go down to Bethlehem and in company with wandering shepherds and adoring magi, let us see him who was born king of the Jews. For we by faith can claim an interest in him and can sing, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus is Jehovah incarnate, our Lord and our God, and yet our brother and friend. Let us adore and admire. Let us notice at the very first glance his miraculous conception. It was a thing unheard of before and unparalleled since that a virgin should conceive and bear a son. The first promise ran thus, the seed of the woman, not the offspring of the man. Since venturous woman, I'm going to be honest, I don't know what that word is, V-E-N-T-U-R-O-U-S, venturous. I have never read that word before, but we're going to go with it. Since venturous woman led the way into sin, which brought forth paradise lost, she, and she alone, oh, I guess it's venturous, like you're venturing out, like you're exploring. Okay, gotcha. Let me go back and read that, that sentence. Since venturous woman led the way into sin, which brought forth paradise lost, she, and she alone, ushers in the regainer of paradise. Our Savior, although truly man, was as to his human nature the Holy One of God. Let us reverently bow before the Holy Child, whose innocence restores to manhood its ancient glory. And let us pray that he may be formed in us the hope of glory. Fail not to note his humble parentage. His mother has been described simply as a virgin, not a princess or a prophetess or a matron of large estate. True, the blood of kings ran in her veins, nor was her mind a weak and untaught one, for she could sing most sweetly a song of praise. But yet how humble her position, how poor the man to whom she stood affianced. I think that's how you pronounce that. And how miserable the accommodation afforded to the newborn king. Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him, in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. Council of Nicaea began June 19th, the year 325 AD. It was called by Emperor Constantine, but to be honest, Emperor Constantine did not have much um, care 
where he didn't care much for what the theological conclusion of the council would be. He just wanted unity to exist in the Christian sphere because Christianity was a at this time becoming a big part of the Roman Empire. What was going on, or had been going on for some time after the time of Christ and the apostles, was a debate between what would become, who would become known as Arians and who would become known as Orthodox Trinitarians. The debate was over the relationship between the Son and the Father. Namely, uh, how do we understand the nature of Christ? Is he very God of very God? Is he the eternal God who created the world? Or did Christ not exist before the virgin birth? What was, uh, you know, when the, when the curtains pull back in Matthew and the New Testament begins, is that the first time that, that Christ has ever existed? Or is he eternally begotten? Or is he... The Word that has existed, um, God the Son, same substance with the Father that has always eternally existed. Well, that, that was the debate going on in Christianity, and that's why the Council of Nicaea was called. It was called by Constantine, but as I said, he didn't really have much care in what the conclusion would be. He demonstrated that later um, in his life. But the Council of Nicaea was called to decide on the relationship between the Son and the Father. So, just a side note, it was not about deciding what the canon of Scripture would be. You may have heard that from some internet troll, uh, but I'm here to tell you that that's not true. The canon of Scripture was not decided or, or anything at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the, uh, the, the debate really can be spoken of as centering around three words. The Arians, the Arians said that Christ was, now I'm, I'm probably going to butcher some of this, but um, you're just going to stick with me because most of you listening to this podcast don't know whether or not I'm butchering the Greek that I'm about to read. But the Arians said that Christ was of a different substance, which is heterousius, heterousius, of a different substance than the Father. The Orthodox Trinitarians, men such as Alexander and Athanasius, said that Christ was homoousius, of the same substance as the Father. Now, I've already explained those two positions. There was a third position, though, that is not often talked about. It was the Eusebian position. It stated that Christ was of a similar substance, homoousius, with the Father. Now, the, the Eusebians did believe that Jesus was God, but their concern was that they did not want to blend the persons. They didn't want to confuse the person of the Son with the person of the Father. And, and uh, as the Council of Nicaea went on and as it completed, the Eusebian concern was, for the most part, addressed. Uh, so they, they ended up joining sides with uh, Alexander and the Trinitarians. So the debate, the debate is really between those two words, heterousius, that's the one I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing right, and homoousius. Is Christ of a different substance than the Father or of 
the same substance uh, as the Father, the same divine substance. Well, the, uh, the council has had a number of, I don't want to say myths, but uh, has had a number of things said about it. For example, it is, you may have heard the story of uh, St. Nicholas, who got so mad at Arius that he punched him in the face at this council. I'm not going to say that's not true because I don't want to damper your spirits this Christmas, but I will say it is an awesome story (laughs) for sure. Well, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, another interesting fact about it is that they were having some trouble as the meetings went on trying to actually find a way to... um, disagree scripturally with the Arians. They did disagree with them, the Trinitarians did, but every time they came up with a confession, uh, with a list of scriptures that or passages that taught Trinitarian theology, every time they did that, the Arians turned around and said, no, we believe all those scriptures, but we think they teach uh, that Jesus is not of the same substance as the Father. (laughs) So the, the problem that, that they ran into at the Council of Nicaea was that they realized they had to use language that was not in the Bible in order to be precise and clarify what the Bible was teaching. Okay, Now, if you've never thought about that before, that might sound odd, um, but I hope it doesn't alarm you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with, with using language that's not in the Bible to further clarify what the Bible is talking about. In fact, not only is it not wrong, but it's absolutely necessary. You, you don't want a creed or a confession to just be Scripture. First of all, why, why does it exist if it's just Scripture? We, we have the Scripture bound right there. Just go read your Bible. Don't read this confession. That's just a repetition of what the Scripture says. But, but second of all, people can twist Scripture. Men have been twisting Scripture uh, as long as we've existed. The serpent, the first sin in the garden came when he twisted the Word of God, spoke to Eve, and then Eve, Eve sinned. Scripture can be twisted. Any word can be twisted. But the point is that we want to uh, exegete the Word and then clarify what it means in terms that are inescapable for heretics. okay, That's what the Council of Nicaea realized they had to do. It was not enough simply to repeat what the Bible was saying. They had to form a creed that the Arians could not read, they could not twist and could not um, uh, uh, push and pull to make it say what they want it to say. And... uh, I'm actually going to read the Nicene Creed for you. It's not very long. This is what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, 
and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. It's a good creed. It's a biblical creed. I'm glad it exists. And at that council, in that creed, we have, just to, just to repeat this, we have it clearly stated that Christ uh, became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human, and this Christ is of the same essence as the Father. God from God, light from right, light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. So before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did Christ exist? Absolutely. Um, or God the Son existed, excuse me. God the Son existed. Now, I want to turn our attention slightly, now that I've read the Nicene Creed, I want to turn my, our attention to a couple of more confessions. This is the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. This is from chapter 8, uh, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the Holy Spirit coming up down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably, inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now notice a few things. This was written in 1689, some 1,300 years after the Council of Nicaea. What we have here is a robust Trinitarian theology, a, a wonderful confession of Christ as divine and of the same substance as the Father. So what this, what this shows is that um, this is just one example of how Trinitarian theology, the conclusion of the council at Nicaea, it won out. Biblical theology won the day. God saw that his truth prevailed as time continued on and the church age, the last days, continued on. Uh, so that's wonderful. Um, however, it was not like that immediately after the council of Nicaea. Immediately after the Council of Nicaea, and by immediately I mean the uh, about 100 years, 80 or so years after the Council of Nicaea, you just take that chunk of time, um, 
the the conclusions of that council were hated by a lot of people, and over a period of a few decades, the um, the world became Aryan, and it eventually got to the point where Athanasius um, in Alexandria, down in Egypt, he he was just about the only uh, scholar, you might say, uh, public pastor and theologian. He's about the only one of his kind who was actually writing and preaching and arguing for a Trinitarian theology. James White has a wonderful article about this story called The Aftermath of Nicaea. It's actually part of a larger article at JesusIsCreator.org. You can find that if you want to. Uh, I'm not going to go through the story, but but it's a wonderful story of Athanasius's faith in the Scriptures um, and really demonstrates how the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura was was evident from the very beginning of the church. Athanasius did not believe in doctrine of the Trinity because everyone else did, because not hardly anyone else did. Um, and so it was by God's grace that the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical theology, prevailed as time went on. And then we come to 1689 with this London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we have a robust teaching of the deity of Christ. And I want to reread a few of these phrases so that you understand exactly what we're talking about when we say that Christ became incarnate. Okay, so so Christ, uh, so God the Son exists exists from all eternity, and it comes time for Him to for, for His first advent for Him to come to Earth, and um, He does not, as Paul says in Philippians, He does not consider his divine nature to a thing to be grasped, so he empties himself and takes on the form of a servant, that is, the form of a man. Now, it does not say that he lost his divinity. It does not say that. It just says that he does not grasp it. He does not assert his divinity. So Paul is saying that he does, he does not assert his divine rights and prerogatives, but he, he humbles himself, he becomes a man. Now, in that incarnation, that's what we're thinking about at Christmas. That's what the confession is talking about and what I'm about to read. In that incarnation, quote, uh, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. So so the two natures it's talking about is God the Son, the divine nature, and, and the, uh, the human nature of Christ, inseparably joined together in one person. There was no conversion, composition, or confusion. So after this union of the nature of God and nature of man, what you have is the person of Christ being very God and very man, but one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So for this reason, it's not, it's not uh, very accurate to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I understand what we mean when we say that, but, but it's, it's not really true that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It doesn't make much sense to say that. A more accurate uh, way to state that would be Jesus is truly God and truly man. Man, there's a funny clip on YouTube of R.C. Sproul 
correcting uh, Pastor John MacArthur on this issue. <laughs> they were doing a question and answer panel, uh, and, and John MacArthur comments that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and R.C. Sproul in his classic, uh, uh, just guttural uh, way, interrupts John MacArthur and says, I think you mean uh, truly God and truly man. And MacArthur says, yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> it's a funny a funny moment. I can't remember what conference it was at. But, but anyway, so that's some on the incarnation of Christ. Now, uh, Antioch East is part of the Baptist Missionary Association of America. I think that's what it stands for. <laughs> uh, and we have a statement of faith, uh, a doctrinal statement, that is, which, I mean, we can debate over whether or not there's actually a substantive or practical difference between a doctrinal statement and a confession. Uh, we, we can debate that sometime. But here's what the confession has to say about Jesus. It, it's not a very comprehensive doctrinal statement, to be honest. But in speaking of God and God the Son... The statement says that God the Son is the Savior of the world. Born of the Virgin Mary, he declared his deity among men. Then later it says that he ascended back to the Father. So there you have the idea that, that yes, um, God the Son exists before the incarnation, and he is at the right hand of the Father until he returns to rapture them from the world, rapture believers. So, uh, not not a very robust statement of the incarnation of Christ. I don't think there's another statement of the incarnation, but you know what? While I'm live on this microphone, let me check. Uh, no, I think that's it. If, if I'm wrong, someone can correct me. Um, but it, it's absolutely true. We have the virgin birth here, which is essential to... Um, for, for Christ being a second Adam and for Christ being born uh, apart from original sin. And we have the, the clear teaching and belief that, again, uh, Jesus is not of a separate substance than the Father. Um, he, it's not that he began to exist when he was conceived and then born from Mary. Uh, Jesus has always existed, eternally begotten of the Father. So, that, that's a little bit on the incarnation of Christ. I hope that was informative. And, uh, yeah, cool. All right, on to section number two. Let's talk about some Christmas poetry. Christmas poetry. I'm going to give you the top 15 Christmas hymns. What do I mean by top? I mean most popular. Looking at Christmas 2019, these are the 15 most popular Christmas hymns. You say, Will, how do you know they're the most popular? And I would say, well, uh, that's none of your business. This is, I'm recording this podcast, so don't ask me where I'm getting my uh, information from. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a, just a list. Don't worry about it. So these are not Christmas carols. Also, these are not um, modern Christmas hymns. 
Also, these are not Christmas hymns that Chris Tomlin took and modernized the verses and wrote this weird uh, chorus to and sings it 14 times on Caleb. Okay, these are not those songs. Uh, so here we go. Most popular Christmas hymns this Christmas. First of all is, O Come, All Ye Faithful. And then down from that, we have Joy to the World. Number three is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Then Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Silent Night, O Holy Night. That Those are two songs right there, Silent Night, and then the next one is O Holy Night. <clears throat> o Little Town of Bethlehem, Angels We Have Heard on High, The First Noel, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, haven't sung that in a while, Angels from the Realms of Glory, While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks, I don't think that's the name of that song. But anyway, what child is this away in a manger? And God rest ye merry gentlemen. There you go. The most popular Christmas hymns this Christmas. How do I know that? Well, uh, yeah. Oh, Come All Ye Faithful was written by John Francis Wade, uh, who was born in England and died in France. It was written in 1743. There was a, sp- a sharp spike of the usage of this hymn at the end of the 20th century, um, but it was not popular until just before World War II. A couple more facts about Christmas hymns. Joy to the World is not actually a Christmas hymn. <gasps> it is one of my favorites, but it's not actually a Christmas hymn. It's written by Isaac Watts in 1719 and was not very popular in the middle of the 20th Century. Why do you need to know that? Well, it's just good information. It came upon a midnight clear. Now, this is this is very uh, in, an intriguing bit of trivia right here. Might have some practical inf- uh, implications. I don't know. I'll let you decide. But it came upon a midnight clear. Was is taken from the apocrypha. And the apocrypha are a um, the Old Testament apocrypha, a group of books or works written by Jews in between the Old and New Testaments. They're not bad works. There's nothing, uh, they're not heretical. Um, there's some good historical information in the, apoc- in the Apocrypha. For example, uh, we, we learn about the Pharisees and Sadducees from the Apocrypha. Um, but the, it came upon a midnight clear was actually taken from the Apocrypha. Not the whole song, but it's based on some poetry from the Apocrypha. It was written in 1849 by Edmund Sears. He's a, a Unitarian pastor. And if you read the, uh, go read the song lyrics sometime, you'll notice that the song is not actually about Christ. <laughs> it's more about uh, war and, and peace and angels singing um, it's kind of interesting. I, I think that an argument could be made that it, this probably should not be in our list of Christmas songs to be singing uh, with God's people. What child is this? The melody is Green Sleeves, as a lot of people know, but what, what many people don't know is that we actually don't know who wrote the melody. Most hymns cite uh, What Child Is This as the melody being a, a traditional English uh, composition or, or melody. Uh, it was written in the late 16th century. 
Also, just a personal bit of trivia. I growing up, I used to think that Green Sleeves was written by Bach, which is clearly not true. All right, for some actual <clears throat> and substantive poetry, the poem "I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day" was originally called "Christmas Bells." Was written by Henry Longfellow uh, in. Christmas of 1863. Let me give you some backstory on this poem. I think that uh, you'll find it very meaningful. In uh, in 1861, Longfellow was awakened from a nap to the sound of his wife uh, burning alive. Her dress had caught fire. Uh, from from some wax that she was she was with her children and uh, the hot wax caught fire when the wind blew through a window and she she busted into or burst into his uh, Longfellow's study he was woken from a nap to to his wife burning alive as I said and and um, he threw a rug on her to try to to put her out and that didn't work and so he he wrapped her up in his own body just desperately trying to extinguish the flames. Well, he did extinguish the flames, but but not in time to save her. She died the next morning. Longfellow himself was was very um, seriously wounded in the face. He got serious burns on his face for the rest of his life. He would have a a full scraggly beard because he could not shave. If you see pictures of, of Henry Longfellow, it's probably got a, a big beard. That's why. Um, that Christmas, Longfellow wrote, quote, How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. A year after the incident, in 1862, he wrote, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday, perhaps someday, God will give me peace. And then a journal entry in December 1862. So this is a year and a half from uh, removed from his wife's tragic death. He wrote uh, in his journal, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. So clearly his wife's tragic death and, and just the whole series of events there had a profound impact on this man, um, as I'm sure it would anyone who loves their spouse. Well, his son Charles, uh, in the summer of or March 1863, uh, joined the Union Army. Civil War had been going on for a couple of years now, and he had a tough time of it that year. He, he got typhoid fever, ended up missing the Battle of Gettysburg because of that. When he came back, he ended up getting shot through the torso. The, the bullet went straight through him, and grazed his spine. Uh, now Charles ended up being okay, but but Longfellow did not know that at first. He he gets a a message saying that his son is gravely injured and that he will probably be paralyzed for life. He got that word on December third, eighteen sixty three. So Christmas comes, uh, December twenty fifth, eighteen sixty three. His his son Charles. Um, you know, 18, 19 years old, is, is, has, is beginning a long recovery process. The memory of his wife is, is still engraved in his mind and undoubtedly still heavy upon him. He still has the scars on his face 
reminding him of that tragic event. And on this Christmas, Longfellow heard bells, and he uh, he heard a choir singing "Peace on Earth." I'm not sure what song it was, but but it was based on that text from Luke. And so Longfellow wrote the poem, Christmas Bells, or I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And I want to read that poem for you because I I think the last two stanzas of the poem, um, now that you know the backstory, uh, these last two stanzas stanzas will be much, much more powerful and meaningful uh, knowing what you know now. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the earth stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, pay attention close to these last two stanzas. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So here you have uh, certainly Longfellow writing the poem, it doesn't have to just be about his own suffering, obviously. Anyone who's written something understands that. But but also, you, you cannot help. <laughs> you cannot help but be motivated from your own life experiences. And so as we read that stanza, in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. You, you cannot help but think, this is Longfellow thinking about um, his, the tragedies in his life the uh, the lack of peace that he seems to have had and and where does longfellow go for peace the peace that he he wrote in uh, in 1862 that perhaps someday god will give me peace where does this peace come from well he tells you in the last stanza of the poem then pealed the bells more loud and deep god is not dead nor doth he sleep the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So where, where does Longfellow end up finding peace, finding hope in, in a, uh, a depressing Christmas? Well, he finds it in God. He finds it in the God who is not dead, who is not slumbering, but has been very much alive and awake and present in his trials. Um, that's where peace comes from. And this is a wonderful poem to remind us of that this Christmas season. So enjoy your food uh, this Christmas. Enjoy the time with family. Enjoy all these good things. But keep in mind, there's no peace. There's no ultimate peace in these things. 
That can be only found in a sovereign, gracious God. James Montgomery Boyce, before he passed away, um, wrote many things, but he, he wrote some on Christmas, and he shared four four ways that we can celebrate Christmas, and I want to share those with you uh, now on this podcast, on this, this Christmas extravaganza. <laughs> the first thing is uh, good news, the shepherds... Um, declare the news of Christ's birth almost immediately. That's one way we can celebrate Christmas. We can tell people what the what the true meaning of Christmas is, what, what it means, peace on earth, among those whom God is well pleased with. Uh, we can tell people about Christ and the incarnation. Uh, that's one way to celebrate Christmas. A second one is amazement. J- just to be amazed at the person of Christ and and. This, this Messiah figure being truly God and truly man. So share the good news of Christ's birth. Um, be amazed at the incarnation of Christ. And thirdly, uh, ponder. Ponder Christmas. The Bible says that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Speaking of the events around Christ's birth, Christmas is a time for reflection. Do not give in, uh, my friend. To the idea that that you don't need to be serious about theology. R.C. Sproul is famous for saying that everyone is a theologian. What he means is that everyone believes something about God, even atheists. Um, you believe something about God, you should be a good theologian. Now, you don't have to spend all your time reading books by dead people and, you know, these big 2,000-page volumes. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you are created by God in the image of God, and you are responsible for seeking God, for knowing your Creator. He has revealed Himself to you, and and it is not only your responsibility to to take hold of that self-revelation of God and uh, and pursue God through it, but, but also it is very offensive for you to have so much revelation from God about Himself and yet not care to study it. So Christmas is a time for pondering and reflection on theology, on the person of Christ, that is for sure. And the the fourth um, way to celebrate Christmas that Boyce gives us is what he calls praise and glory. And this is simply worship. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Christmas should be compelling us to worship God. This should be a time where our hearts are renewed, where we have a, a covenant renewal time like, like Israel does uh, uh, with Joshua and Moses and, and several other times when we come back from exile. But this should be a time of, of resetting our eyes on Christ and reinvigorating ourselves unto uh, to live for Him and present our, our bodies as a uh, sacrifice to God, which is our, our um, act of worship, Paul says in Romans 12. So those are four ways to celebrate Christmas from voice. I thought those were good to just mention. 
And and last of all, let me just say Merry Christmas from, from Antioch East Baptist Church. If you are a member of our church or if you're not a member, if you've never even been here to, to our congregation before, I want you to know that I'm that, uh, so glad that you're listening to this podcast. Um, and, and you need to know that, that there is peace that, that God has ushered in to the world beginning at Christmas. There's true peace, a peace that does not go away, that does not wax or wane, but it is consistent. But that peace is not for everybody. There is a theme in, in some even Christmas hymns about peace being given to all men that's actually not a biblical Christmas concept. God did not send Christ to give peace to all men. He came. He sent Christ to save his people from their sins. And if you read the Christmas story of, of Luke and elsewhere carefully, you will see that, that the text never says that peace goes to all men without distinction. The text says that peace goes to God's people or those with whom he is well pleased. Right. So, so my encouragement to you would be if, if you're having a tough Christmas, if you're having a maybe just a tough go at it in life, um, uh, peace is found in Christ. Peace is found in, in submitting yourself to the person and work of Christ, uh, to his will, and in flinging, excuse me, submitting yourself to Christ's will and then and looking in faith to the person and work of Christ. He, he has done a mighty work in the cross and the resurrection. He's made a great exchange on the cross. He's taken the sins of his people upon himself and he's given his righteousness to his people. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. And I'll tell you what, friend, if you would turn from your sin and turn to Christ this Christmas, I promise you that you will find Jesus to be a capable Savior. You will find Christ to be capable of forgiving all of your sins and not only forgiving them, but you will find God powerful enough and and glorious enough to rid you of sin practically. Now, it's a hard road. It's a pilgrimage. There's a book called The Pilgrim's Progress I encourage you to read. It's about how the the road is is hard on our way to heaven. Not because we have to earn our way there, but because we're we're justified and regenerated by the the Holy Spirit, but, but, um, but we're not yet perfect. We still have a body that loves to sin. Um, so it's, it's a hard life, but it is filled with peace. It's filled with joy. Um, I, I, would rather, uh, I would rather my worst day as a Christian than my best day as an unbeliever. It's just uncomparable. It's a, it's a distinct category difference of, of life. And um, I encourage you to come to Christ. Come to the, the glorious God who's, who uh, created the world and then condescended to be born in a manger to, to bring you close to Him. Now, for the end of this Christmas special, we have a sermon. This is the sermon that Brother Ron preached on December 22nd, I believe. Yeah, December 22nd at our church. And I, I've edited it a little bit, but it's it's mostly just uh, just pressing the record button and letting it go. <laughs> and uh, once again, Merry Christmas to you and your household from Antioch East Baptist Church. Uh, Merry Christmas. I want you to turn to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, the one, to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. And Ephrathah is just another, is a repeat of the same word, different language. But it means, though, fruitful. Fruitful. And it was located five miles south of Jerusalem. It was just right outside of Jerusalem, the city of David, in the Judean hill country. This prophecy was written 77, excuse me, 700 years before its exact, exact fulfillment when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem. This verse reveals Jesus is the Lord of history, the Lord of royalty, and He is the Lord divinity. Amen. He is God. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was not half man. He was not half God. He was all man. He was all God. He was God in human flesh. Incarnate. That big word that everybody, the preachers always said, you don't know what in the world was it. Incarnate. It means it was God in human flesh. God in the flesh come to us. Micah prophesied against Israel and Judah's oppression, idolatry, and greed. This, this little book of Micah. He, he, he prophesied against their wrongdoings. He prophesied about the coming captivity to the hands of Assyria and Babylon. But as all the prophets do, Micah prophesied about the coming deliverer. He does so with specific insight into the, where he will be born. He gives a couple of places in the book of Micah where he goes back. And let me tell you, if you were, if you were laden with the job of preaching so much oppressive messages of judgment against a sinful, sinful people, every once in a while, God's got to give you a break. If you read the book of Revelation, you have three or four verse, chapters of judgment and doom, and then he gives a little light of hope. And talks about deliverance and, and, uh, and things to come. Thank God for those breaks, amen? amen? Thank God for Christmas time where we don't always focus on the judgment. We don't always focus on sin. We don't always want to talk about the sins of our nation and people and all. And this time of year, we focus on the joy that Jesus brought when he came to be born in that manger. Amen. An important note about prophecy. An important note about prophecy Prophets did not merely tell the future. We think about a prophet, we think of someone that could see into the future and tell the future. But that wasn't their main job. You understand that prophets came to reveal the purposes and plans of God. And Micah had to tell Israel, God has in store for you captivity and, and judgment and punishment. But then he stops, he says, but as all prophets did, let me tell you about a coming day when he's going to send a final and true deliverer to Israel Amen. and to all men. Number one, the place from which Jesus will come, and it is Bethlehem. Let me give you some significance about Bethlehem that you may not understand or know. It was the place of the birth of Benjamin and of the death of Rachel. Genesis chapter 35, verse 17. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor, Rachel, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. 
And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So we see here that we find that this is, that we don't, just don't find Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. Bethlehem is the marriage, where the marriage occurred and the city of Ruth and Boaz. I don't know if you've ever studied the little book of Ruth, but it is awesome. Uh, you really need to read and understand that book. It is amazing. It is full of uh, the salvation of the Lord. It is good. But that is where Ruth married Boaz. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, she wasn't even an Israelite, but God chose her to be the great-grandmother of David. Look at this in Ruth 4.11, uh, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Verse 11 says, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Let's put her, let's put Ruth on the same level as our great matriarchs of, Ruth, of Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem, and be famous in Bethlehem. Ruth conceived and bears a son. And this is what they said about it in verse 17. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amen. <laughs> Listen, it's not just the city of David, it was the city of Ruth who is up there with the patriarchs, according to the Bible. The women who built, did you hear that, ladies? The women who built Israel. And Ruth is right there at the top with them. This was a blessed, wonderful woman. And she was from this blessed town, this backwoods, if you would, hill country, uh, no-name town uh, to most people. Just kind of a long away suburb of Jerusalem. Nobody went to Bethlehem. They bypassed it. It's one of those towns when you're on your way to uh, Little Rock or maybe on your way to Dallas and you go through these little towns and someone says, I'm from so-and-so. Where is that? Well, you go through it all the time when you go to Dallas. What? And you can't figure out, oh yeah, I think I remember that little town. That's what Bethlehem was. And now we see that the greatest significance this town has to glory in is it becomes the birthplace of the Son of God. Luke 2, 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and he was of the lineage of David to be re uh, registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Number two, we see the insignificance of Bethlehem. I've really kind of touched it, but let me go over this. It never grew to be more than a few thousand in population. It was one of those towns that looked like it was on the rise and then it would die. It never became a really good suburb, although a little closer, but it never became a suburb of Jerusalem. 
Despite the great forefathers and foremothers who lived and died there, it got little notice through the years. The last notable historical event that happened in Bethlehem was 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus at, uh, as a, a priest by the name of Pelagius spewed his heresy from that city. He was the opponent of St. Augustine in a wayside village. Now listen, in a wayside village, in a barn, attended by shepherds, probably teenagers, probably kids, old enough to be, go out and stay during the night and watch the sheep. Who's going to do the midnight shift? Who's going to do the, the uh, graveyard shift? Uh, well, let's, the teenage, let the teenage, they can handle it, they're young. Those are the very people, young people, that God chose to announce His birth. In a wayside village in a borrowed barn attended by shepherds who had been out in the countryside sleeping, watching sheep. The king of kings came in this manner. He was born in a borrowed barn. He lived in borrowed beds and he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. The sad thing about it is that's how we still receive him. We still receive him. Matthew 20, 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And let me tell you, I'm all about the joy of Christmas. I'm all about the gift giving and things and, and all this stuff. But it is so, as we complain about all the time, so commercialized that it is. And we must remind ourselves that Christmas is not the time of getting. It's the time of giving. Number two, the purpose for which He will come. Or He did come, if you want to go. Look at this. Look at these phrases. Number one, uh, let me get back to Micah here. Look at verse two. But you, Bethlehem, you, uh, Ephrathah, though you are little among the nations of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the next two words, to me. Now in our society, if it's all about me, let me tell you something. Jesus did not come for you. Does that surprise you? Jesus did not come for you. He did not come to you. He came for God the Father. He came to God the Father. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him, he has put him to grief. It was God that sent him to the manger. It was God that sent him to the life he lived. It was God that sent him to the cross and to the grave. And when you make your soul an offering for sin, Isaiah goes on, he shall see his seed. <laughs> he shall see his seed. So many people think that God's up in heaven rubbing his hands saying, I hope this thing works. No, my friend. It's all in his design. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his day. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
and he shall see the labor of his soul. He will be satisfied by the knowledge of my righteous servant, God says. By the knowledge of my righteous servant shall he justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And he did it not for your sake, but for the glory and the holiness and the plan of God Almighty. That's why no one gets any glory but God. Nobody gets, don't pat your well, I bless God one day I was smart enough. No, my friend, you ran as far away from God as you possibly can. And he caught you in your iniquity and opened your eyes and your heart and saved you. That's the way it goes. That's the testimony. And it's not about you. It's about him. Before we benefited from Jesus, the pleasure of the Lord prospered in God's hand. The first intention of Christ is obedience to the Father. The first intention of Christ is obedience to the Father. Is this not the very theme song of the Christmas story? And suddenly there was the angel, a heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Not peace, goodwill toward men and thank you, Jesus. No, it's glory to God in the highest. Then peace on earth, goodwill to men. Every time the angel angel announced another aspect of the Christmas story, Mary broke out in song. Simeon, as we saw today, broke out in song. They all broke out in song. Not one of them praised Joseph, not one of them praised Mary. Not one of them praised us. They all praised God for sending salvation. And then look at this. Look. And you, uh, and you shall come forth to me, the one to be the ruler of Israel. Now let me tell you something. Ever since time began and before, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God have lived in perfect unity and harmony and they have always been in control. Always. He's the ruler of Israel. This indicates a two-part prophecy here. A two-part prophecy. He's born in Bethlehem. That happened 2,000 years ago. But he is not yet the ruler of Israel intentionally or, 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 or what we would call literally. He is. He is the ruler because he's God. Amen. He's got, in, in, in Star Wars and the like, there's the good and the bad and the war and you're tense and that's why we like watching. Who will win? What will be the outcome? It's like a ball game. But my friend, in reality, in history, in spiritual, it is nothing like that. You don't have to guess who the winner is. You don't have to guess who the winner is. He is the ruler, but... Literally, he will sit on the throne of David. Isaiah, uh, uh, and I believe this when he says the ruler in Israel speaks to the millennial reign of Christ, which is yet to come, and I believe is literal. In Isaiah 9, 6, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over 
over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, ever, uh, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I don't think that's talking about some spiritual analogy of of, uh, spiritual things. I think it's a literal thing. I think God will literally sit on the throne of David. I think he will come into a city, four square, built of pure, uh, uh, transparent uh, gold with walls, 216 foot thick that raises above that city and it's made of pure diamonds and the city is set on 12 foundation stones that are 12 different jewels and I think they're above the ground. This is an awesome and a mighty city, one that reaches nearly to the moon if it were on this earth and and he will come into that city and he, I believe he's going to veil his glory and he's going to sit on that throne and he's going to throw off that robe and his Shekinah glory is going to shoot through every facet of that bejeweled city and there will be no night there. There will be no night there. The power with which he will come. I used this, I think, a couple years ago, but I'm going to use it again. This has happened in December of 2016. And it's a little bit lengthy. I'm going to read it, but uh, we'll be nearly finished when I get finished. Andy Stanley, the founder of North Point Ministry, a network of six congregations, the son of Charles Stanley, across the Atlanta metropolitan area, attended by 30,000 worshipers a week, said in a message on December 3rd of 2016 that one of the challenging things about Christmas is the unbelievable, that's his words, quote, unbelievable nature of the stories in the Bible describing Jesus' miraculous conception. He says, and I quote, a lot of people don't believe it. And I understand that, Stanley said. Maybe the thought is they had uh, that is they had to come up with some kind of myth about the birth of Jesus to give him street cred later on. Maybe that's where that came from. End quote. Now Stanley's not denying the virgin birth. He just brings it into question without explaining. Stanley called it interesting that only two of the four Gospels mention the virgin birth. Matthew gives us a virgin of the birth of Christ, and he said, Luke does, but Mark and John, they don't even mention it. A lot has been made about that, he says, without explanation. This man is trying to bring into question the virgin birth of Christ. He calls himself an evangelical. Stanley said he is less concerned about the virgin birth than with the resurrection. If somebody can predict their own death and their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into this world because the whole resurrection thing is so amazing, he said. This is, it's blasphemous. Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth of even the stories around the birth of Jesus, Stanley said. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, took exception to Stanley's view in a December 16th podcast describing the Bible stories about Christ's incarnation as, this is what 
Al Mohler said that the incarnation is the central truth claims of Christmas. Just in recent days, one Christian leader was quoted as saying that if Jesus predicted his death and then was raised from the dead, it doesn't matter how he came into the world, Mueller said. But the Bible insists it really does matter, and the answer given from Scripture very clear in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus was born to a virgin. If he wasn't, guess what? He's not God. And He couldn't pay for your sin. And the death and resurrection would be meaningless. The great question, he goes on, of liberal theology has been to invent a Jesus who was stripped of all supernatural power, deity, status, and authority, Moeller says. And in order to do that, they have to begin by denying what the Bible so clearly teaches in terms of the virgin birth. Moeller said, doubters about the virgin birth go back even further, quoting Augustine's rebuttal of contemporaries in the late 4th and 5th centuries, centuries uh, embraced by the, uh, embarrassed, excuse me, by the incarnation. The more impossible, uh, uh, I think this is Augustine that said this, it may be Moeller, but I like this statement. Listen, the more impossible the virgin birth of a human being appears to them, the more divine it, de- it appears to us. I like that. Then, as now, the issue comes down to the truth and authority of Scripture. Amen. To reveal Christ, Moeller said. And that's what the Bible does. It reveals Christ, and it reveals Christ to have been conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, as predicted by the prophets, and born in order to save sinners. End quotes. Micah 5 2 says, Whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. My friend, God's been, Jesus has been ruling for a long time. Matter of fact, the longest time. He's been ruling all time. He created time. He created this world and He created you. And He has brought you to this place today. You think you came, well, it's Christmas. We better go to church at least twice a year, Christmas and Easter, whatever, Mother's Day too. But listen, I want to tell you why you're here. Not because you got nagged to come, not because mom and daddy dragged you. You came today because God brought you here. And you can reject this message to your own eternal peril. Or you can call on the name of the Lord and you can be saved. And you can receive the greatest gift, the gift that will make you throw all your gifts away and give them to others. The gift that will change you from loving your sin, loving your drugs, loving your illicit lifestyle, loving the things that, that, that the flesh loves, lying and, and can't stand my parents because they they all they want to do is bring me down and put me in bondage and I want to be free to do whatever in the world I want to. If you'll come to Jesus truly repenting of your sin, He'll change your heart to start loving your parents like you ought to. He'll make you want to quit lying. He'll make you want to be faithful. He'll make you want to talk right. He'll make you want to walk right. He'll make, the things that used to make you laugh will now make you cry. And the things that used to make you cry, now you'll laugh about. And the things you used to lo- hate, you'll love. And the things you used to love, you'll hate. And you'll love Jesus beyond and love everything else. Come to Jesus today. That's the message. He was born in Bethlehem. But my friend, he was born with this day in mind and with you in mind.
Some see eternity past as dark and gloomy. But wherever Jesus is, there's light. The Bible says that God dwells in inapproachable light. Wherever God has been, there has been surpassing light and beauty. Jesus dwelt in light right up to the hour he was put in darkness on the cross from the Father for you and for me. Can you imagine? Did you hear what I said there? I wrote it so I'd be sure, but let me just go back. We, we think of eternity past. I don't know about you, but I try to think about Jesus' eternality, and I see him right here in my face. Everything I can see is just Jesus, and he goes back. I don't know what he looked like, but I just assume. And he goes back and back and back and back into the darkness until I just can't see him anymore. But it's always darkness. And what I'm saying is, wherever Jesus is, his Shekinah glory goes, and wherever he is, physically, spiritually, in every way, there is beautiful light. Amen. Beautiful light. Until the day he had to die for you. He stepped into darkness. Rejected and crucified, not by Romans, not by Jews, by his father. For you. For you. The story of Christmas is beautiful. Actually, it's not really beautiful if you think about it literally. We've made it beautiful, and it's beautiful in our hearts. That's why we, that's why we put Jesus in a soft, sweet, little glowing. Everybody's got halos, and, and, the, and, and, and in the manger scenes, that we've, the sheep are smiling. You ever seen a sheep smile? <laughs> Let me tell you something. If a cow ever comes up to you and smiles, run, run. <laughs> but in our nativity scenes, they're smiling. And that's great. That's fine because we, we, we're, it's art, I guess you could say, and we're picturing that. But I want to tell you about the manger Jesus uh, was born in. It was dusty. It was hay. You ever been in a barn with hay? You ever gone out and messed with hay and gone home and said, oh, I'm surprisingly all clean. And cows and sheep and goats and camels and anywhere you find cows and sheep and goats and camels, you know what else you find? Cows and sheep and goats footprints. Where were y'all going with that? It's barely a place for them to have their children, let alone a human being, let alone the king of kings. But Bethlehem's where it happened. It's a great city to us because of what God did there. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes.